we're all in it together. I mean, this is not us versus them. This is not the people versus the government because the people are the government and the government is the people in this country. So, and I think that's really unique and we forget that sometimes in the way that it plays out uh, a lot of times in the press and, and other, other places. Welcome back to the OML Podcast. I'm Mike Fina, Executive Director of the Oklahoma Municipal League. Last week, our guest was Mayor Bria Clark from Norman. We discussed the early impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on municipalities. This week, I want to drill down to a more specific issue that all public bodies had to deal with at the onset of the pandemic, how to keep government operational while maintaining transparency with the public and the press. In March, the state essentially shut down all normal operations, not just state government, but business and industry as well. As April approached, the question of public meetings was a critical issue for the legislature. They rushed to pass Senate Bill 661, which allowed for boards, commissions, and other groups to continue to meet and conduct the people's business using video and teleconferencing. This was a great relief to many municipalities around the state. We've been doing it now for about six months and the reviews are mixed, but there is an effort to improve the language from 661 and allow public bodies to retain some ability to meet virtually. Our guest this week is probably the foremost expert on the state's open meetings laws and also the impact of 661. He might disagree with that statement because he's a pretty modest guy, but I think all of you will agree by the end of this podcast, he knows what he's talking about in regard to the Open Meetings and Open Records Act of the state of Oklahoma. I want to welcome to the podcast, Oklahoma Press Association Director, Mark Thomas. Mark, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing terrific today, Mike. Thank you very much. This week, uh, Senate Pro Tem Greg Treat held an interim study in regard to Senate Bill 661 and the possibility of making the law permanent. Mark, you testified at that study. What were your impressions and do you actually see a future for wider use of virtual meetings in the state? Uh, my impressions of the interim study were very positive. I thought all the senators that were there, both in person and online, uh, were very attentive. They had good questions. Uh, I saw them making a lot of notes. I think it, it really did help them understand kind of the broader perspective, not only from a state level, which they deal with all the time, but all the way down to these tiny little schools and cities and and, and uh, water districts and sewer districts and all of these tiny little boards that they that sometimes don't think about how these laws affect those those boards. So, but and my impression also is that there there will be enhanced virtual meetings going forward. I, I think we've gotten more familiar with the technology and we're I think we'll figure it out together. Yeah, I, I thought the discussion was pretty robust. They had it, it was pretty press heavy. Uh, there, there was a lot of reports there. We did have one mayor, uh, KP Westmoreland from from Bethany, who talked about from a municipal perspective. But I agree with you. I, I thought they were attentive. Uh, I thought the questions were good. I think people think that this was just a new invention for open meetings uh, when when 661 came about. But the idea of virtual meetings has actually been around the state for quite a while. You and I have had these discussions about it. 
Uh, and I find it fascinating, the, the origins of, of open meetings in Oklahoma and how they came about. Can you discuss the origins of virtual meetings and why the state saw a need for public bodies to be able to meet this way? Uh, certainly. Um, and, and first of all, I have to say that I started at the Press Association in 1983. And I was a staff member here through 1989. And I went to Colorado for a few years and I came back in 1995. So I've been the director about 25 years. So here in the 80s and then since the middle 90s, we've kind of worked on these these issues. But in the 80s, I mean, the really the first important use of this technology was for the banking board, really. They they I mean, the banks and savings and loans were really struggling and uh, it was not uh, adequate, really, for the state banking board who may have a crisis in the closure of a bank to uh, have to post an agenda 24 hours in advance saying we're going to close the first national bank of whatever town it is. Uh, there would be a run on the bank. So they, they basically gave them, that was kind of the first real exceptions uh, for the state banking board so they can act quickly. Uh, and then in the 90s, 92, 93, they started saying, well, we should have some other statewide boards that could video, that could telecom. It was by telephone. And they started listing those boards in the statute. Oklahoma Futures, the state regents for higher education. So, um, and every year, someone would come along and say, I need to, I'd like to be added to that list. So we, have, we were adding board after board after board to the statute. Eventually, <laughs> given the logical conclusion, every public body would be eventually be listed in the act. And we thought that was a little silly. So uh, uh, we thought we need to really try and fix this. And then uh, really had a couple of panhandle area legislators saying, boy, I need to come to meetings in Oklahoma City all the time. But it's a, I mean, it's a two-day drive for them, plus the, to come to a one-hour meeting. And uh, so they felt like, uh, felt like they needed uh, some relief there. So we worked with those uh, legislators to come up with really a standardized set of rules. So it, would, it, didn't, it didn't really matter which body they were wanting to go to and whether it was on the list or not. So we sort of wiped out the list and said, let's set a common set of rules for all public bodies to meet uh, by uh, video conference because video conferencing was coming along and I think there's a big difference between just a teleconference where you're on the telephone and a video conference um, where you can actually see and respond to each other in person. Watching a radio, watching a football yeah. game on the radio, on listening on the radio or watching on television or actually being at the game. Those are three different experiences. Yeah, that's a good point because I've heard you say that uh, on several occasions that there is a big difference between tele and video conferencing, um, especially when it comes to, to the open meetings. Um, what, so kind of expand on, on that. Why, why is it so important to have the video aspect versus the, the tele, the teleconferencing aspect? Well, I think with the video aspect, you're able to look at the person, you can see that they're engaged. Uh, but I think just as important as the video is some are the comments that I made about that they need to be doing it from a location that is open to the public. 
That's what the law says, because what we were concerned about at the time was, yes, I can see you on the screen, but I can't see who's behind your screen. It possibly influencing your vote. Uh, is, your, is, a, is a friend there? Is an acquaintance? Is a lobbyist? Who's behind that screen giving you the thumbs up or thumbs down on how to vote? That was troubling to us that uh, so so you under the old law, which I call it, uh, which will come back into effect after November 15th, um, it, it, it was important for it to be open to the public wherever you're doing it from. Being able to yep. see helps a lot. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting part of this. In fact, in my notes, it's it's funny you mentioned that. I even wrote down the, the old law because I thought that was interesting how you put it to the legislators. Like, it's an old law, but here in just a few weeks, it's going to be the, the current law again. Um, but you, you did you did say over and over again how important it was that that be in a public place. And I, I think that that right now with 661, people get hung up on that, that, oh, we're trying to protect ourselves from COVID. So we're doing it just like we are today from the comfort of our own homes. Um, but but having that access to the public is very critical to to having a successful open meeting. Uh, what are what are some of your fears from the press from the press's point of view of not having those people in a public setting? Uh, well, our fears, like I said, number one was who's who's in the room with them influencing the vote. I have no idea when when someone is on a board sitting in their living room calling it in, whether they're on the telephone or whether I can see them, who else is in the room or who's who's in there with them. So if it was a place that was open to the public and it didn't, the old law didn't say public building. It doesn't have to be a, a public building, uh, but it's got to be some place that's open to the public. Uh, and I've told people, you know, if you want to participate from your living room, that's fine. Just open it up to the public. <laughs> Nobody really wants to do that. They would, you know, at least go out on the front porch. Uh, right? So, uh, but it's important that you not be able to really hide away from the electorate when you're voting on issues about spending their money or on some hot vote that you've got to take that's very divisive in the community. Uh, that was our fear. That's what would happen. As soon as the hot votes came along, everyone would retreat to their private place, vote by telephone or by video conference and hang up and not come in for a few days. <laughs> Yeah, we had a really interesting, and I'm not I'm not going to call out any of our municipalities on this, but I do want to tell you about an interesting situation we have with one community. The they've been utilizing the virtual meeting, and they've they've done the hybrid version of it. Uh, and I think I don't know if I came up with that term, um, or if people use that, but I always call it the hybrid. When you have a quorum in chamber, but then you ha might have one or two members that are doing a virtual. Are, are joining virtually. Well, what we had in this community is that there were two members that had kids that had just started their youth sports here in the last month, and they were calling into the meeting from from whatever soccer, football, whatever they were playing, and it was becoming a real problem for the mayor because you could hear the fans in the background, and her fear was that uh, not only were they not they were at some place that you probably shouldn't be for a public meeting, but she didn't know how engaged they were in the meeting. And that was a problem for her. 
we worked through some council rules with them to figure out that, you know, that's probably not the best use of it. But I think these are some of the issues that we're going to have to address in how we actually apply whatever that new law turns out to be. I would agree there. People have to use a little common sense. And I realize that's not often a word we use when we're thinking about government. But if common sense is going to be applied here, that's uh, very important because, yes, I, I mean, I participated in a meeting last weekend where the person was at a football game and you could hear the crowd cheering. You could hear that he was engaged for a little while, but not when his grandson was running with the football. And then the, then the, every so often he would be saying, am I still on? Am I still on? I mean, it just let's use a little common sense on when we are a public servant and we're trying to do the public's business. It really needs to be the priority and not secondary to uh, my own convenience. Public service really has an element of sacrifice to it. That's why we call it service. So yeah. I would hope that we could maintain that. I know we've, we've had those discussions and I hear some of um, at least my municipal officials say, well, it's so hard to get people to run for office. So offering this convenience, uh, my response to that is that whether it's hard to get people to run for office or not, it's a responsibility uh, and you take an oath when when you make that decision and you you know there's things you sacrifice i know that from being mayor i sacrificed a lot of things uh but i knew that i had to be at that meeting every every month or whenever we schedule them uh, so i i do think that's something we're going to have to address as we get into the into the meat of whatever this new bill is so there is um one thing that you did during the during the uh, interim study, I actually thought was pretty funny, but it, it is a real critical issue. When you went down the enormous list of different applications that people are using for virtual meetings, and it brought up a actually you even you even uh, got the the pro tem to comment on that uh, that we're using so many different applications that streamlining that, and maybe it would be a good idea for the state to make a decision on a single application. So we didn't have 10 different things to go to 10 different meetings. Uh, I think that's going to be a problem as well. I didn't really think of that back in when 661 was being passed and they're saying, what are the, what are what do you see as the problems with this emergency legislation? It never crossed my mind, but after we've gone through several months of virtual meetings, you hear frustrations from citizens and from the press, uh, which I talk to a lot, but you know that uh, all of these different bodies they have to cover, it's uh, kind of at the choosing of the, the body. So the school board has, may have go to meeting and someone else is doing Facebook and someone else is doing Zoom and someone else is doing Meetup and somebody's doing Pexit, and somebody's doing Jitsi and somebody, so you've got to have all these apps on your phone or your computer to try and follow along. And then they decide from one week to the next, we hate that software. We're changing. And the next week, the public body just changes to a completely different set of software. Well, how, how do you know what that is and how do I download that? And we had we had a couple where they had to charge a premium, where you had to pay a price to have the software to participate in the meeting and that that's wrong so it's become a problem over time and i think we can address it i don't know that a single software can be done but i think we can create some sort of structure in which software that's chosen or virtual meeting technology that's chosen meets the standards of the law whatever the law ends up being 
and, and we all have some kind of common understanding of how that's going to work. You know, that's a good point. Um, right at the, the beginning of this, before the AG put out their FAQs, we were trying to solve a problem uh, with the software and its limitations. Originally, the way the AG interpreted 661, they told us that everybody had to be in the same meeting space. But when you have 100 people that sign in for a meeting and they're all in the same meeting space, you all you have are 100 little boxes on a screen and it's hard to figure out which one is the council member or the city manager. So we had talked with the, with the AG's office and then they did address it, but we had to choose software that would allow for a, a place for the council and a place for the public. And actually the, some of those softwares were, uh, software applications were very limited. And to get that feature, you had to spend money. And in some cases, even if you choose the wrong one, I think you might've been the one that brought this up, that it could end up even costing the public and now all of a sudden you're having to pay to get access to your your elected officials and that is extremely problematic uh, i probably would even go to say that that's illegal i think that you brought up a good point about streamlining this and i feel like that's probably going to be something the state's going to have to make some kind of decision on i i would hope so. we want the state and i mean the public and the press which are really kind of one th one thing it really does want government to work well we all want it to work well but we all want to be able to have access and, and as a self-governing people so uh to we don't want to frustrate the citizens through the use of new technology absolutely yeah i thought trace savage from non-doc made a good point in his testimony and maybe kind of how we need to approach this coming in the next session and that that this is a great opportunity for modernization of the Open Meetings and Open Records Act. There were some unforeseen outcomes from 661 that were actually pretty good for us. We saw a dramatic increase in public participation. I'll give you one great example. Uh, one meeting that the city of Ada held. Now it wasn't the live version, but once they posted it uh, over the course of about 48 hours, 17,000 people viewed that meeting. Uh, so I thought that was a, a, a huge success for 661. But then we also saw some things where people weren't providing documentation and they were really hiding behind the language of the law in order to not provide that documentation. And that I know is very frustrating to the public and it's very frustrating to the press. So uh, I wonder where that balance is uh, to to create this modernized way of meeting and then still respect that 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 transparency so what is that modernization what does that mean to you from from the views of the press we have to remember that these meetings are public meetings they're meetings of the public body not really meetings of the public and so we've elected people and we give them the authority to do their thing and then our only right is to really go uh, to go and watch and record without disruption. And that way we can decide whether we want to reelect people or not, uh, since that's your only right. So that's really what the Open Meetings Act is about. And, and I would agree with you, it is some of the bad actors and some of the people that looked at the new law, which was passed very quickly to try and alleviate some problems. And people found little technical difficulties and used it to the disadvantage of the, of the public. 
So I think the public and the press, everybody wants some sort of improvement and it moder- we can call it modernization if, if we want to, but everybody wants improved access to their government and improved access to the citizens and, and improved transparency. I think we can all work together to, to come up with those solutions, but it's the things that end up frustrating the public that uh, really end up causing a lot of, a lot of turmoil. And so that's what we're trying. That's all we're really trying to avoid. Does modernization frustrate the public or does it allow them to have more access? Are there other things outside of just the the video conferencing language that would be helpful to change as far as open meetings and open records? If we're going to open this up, I mean, should we look at other aspects as well? Sure. I think we should always be willing to look at the whole thing and say, how can we make this better for the public and for the government? Because we all want government to be efficient, yet transparent. We're always willing to look at any piece of the Open Meetings Act or the Open Records Act and say, how can this work better for the people? You know, I heard you say that statement during the interim study. It's not us versus them but it's how to make the best possible decisions for the good of the public. Uh, I thought that was a fantastic statement. And I think more than ever, the way, uh, you know, just nationally, how we treat the press anymore. I, I think that we need to embrace that attitude. Uh, so I'm, I appreciate that that you said that. Now, you, you followed that up with something really interesting that I want to touch on. In your next breath, uh, you said that video is is turning public meetings into the wild, wild west of decision making, which is pretty funny and pretty true. There's got to be a sheriff in that wild, wild west story. And there and there's got to be some accountability if we're going to reel this thing back in. So talk a little bit about just the, the enforcement of the uh, of the Open Meetings Act or Open Records Act. Well, it, it, enforcement originally in both of those was essentially up to the district attorney. And over the years, it's changed where a person could just file their own lawsuit. And if they file a frivolous suit, they'll end up paying the fees for the public body. So, and if they prevail, they may be able to get it, get their fees back. So there are some remedies in the courts, but we would all like to avoid that. And, and in where, where people really live on a daily basis is not in Washington, DC, and it's really not even in Oklahoma city. It's in the small towns and schools and so forth all throughout Oklahoma. And getting mad at each, it's like getting mad at your brother. Nobody's going anywhere. The paper isn't going anywhere. The town's not going anywhere. The school's not going anywhere. You can be mad at each other every now and then, but you're gonna have to figure out how to just work it out over time. The true wild, wild west today is social media, uh, completely unrestrained insane things that people would say on social media that they would never say to your face. So I I think we've got to try and maintain an air of civility in our society and in our public meetings. And that's always easier to do in person when you're standing right there with the person. The further away from in person you go, the less civil it gets. And I think we need to try and figure out how to make it all work going forward. Because I do think there's a place for video conferencing and, and virtual meetings uh, in, the, in the future. If we can keep the civility and superior decision-making, that's really what we're trying to do. 
not right. quick decision making, not convenient decision making, but superior decision making. That's important to all of us. That's a very good term. That's actually seg a good segue into the last uh, question or discussion I want to have with you. Um, the one of the frustrating parts of six six one was how how to deal with public comment. We were in kind of a conundrum with municipal government when the AG fir first rele released his first FAQ. He said that if a public body had public comment prior, they should have public comment now during 661. But there's no statutory requirement for municipalities to have public comment, although the majority of them do because it's good public practice. But it did put us in a weird situation trying to figure out how to allow for comments from, from the public. Um, we, we saw it different ways that people were doing it, some good, some bad, but but nothing was perfect. So how did you view that part of 661? And from the press's point of view, did you think that was a problem as well? Well, 661 didn't really change anything about public comment because you are correct. There is no statute that requires public comment. Uh, I think the public thinks there is. I think the public believes that that they have to let you speak, and that's not really true. It is up to the decision of each public body on how they do public comment. Uh, and I think uh, in when they were thrust into the all virtual world, I saw a lot of public bodies just say, we're not going to do public comment for a while until we figure it out. And that was frustrating to people. They'd always been allowed to, to comment at, at meetings, and now they, now they weren't. And in fact, they not only not able to comment, but couldn't even find the public official who was voting on it because they were driving around in their car on their telephone calling it in. Uh, they did no longer had to participate from a fixed location that was open to the public. Uh, that was frustrating. So I think there is a way. I think we will figure out public comment. Public comment well done is an excellent way for public bodies to really hear the concerns of the citizens. Uh, I see a lot of entities that do it well and, and I appreciate them and I hold them up as examples you know they they talk about an agenda item then they ask if there are comments from the public they set the rules about time limits and so forth and then they hear the comment and then they move on I see some that put public comment on the agenda as the very last agenda item prior to adjournment after executive session it might have been gone to a three-hour executive session so you've got to sit there for three hours after executive session, wait for the meeting to be over, come back and then comment on agenda item number two that was voted on four hours ago. I mean, that that kind of public comment is frustrating to the citizens. And we're going we're gonna to have to try and figure out how to stop that. So I think I think in the virtual world, I think we can maybe be able to figure out some standardized rules for public comment. For those that that do it, um, and and I, I'm not necessarily advocating for required public comment because I understand there are uh, some people locally that just can't control themselves in the public comment period, um, and uh, so we've got to figure out a way to do that. So some standardization and maybe some rules that keep public bodies from setting rules that are frustrating to the public, maybe 
uh, helpful guidance to all of us. Absolutely. And I, I can't confirm or deny that I was guilty at one time or another of moving that public comment around as mayor just to serve my own purposes. <laughs> it happens. Uh, I, I, I might have been guilty of that once or twice. Uh, well, you know, there was... <laughs> my, father, my father is a retired school superintendent. So uh, he, he knows <laughs> he the scary nature of public comment. <laughs> uh, so uh, there was there is one other thing, and then I think we'll probably wrap this up for today. There was there was another reoccurring discussion that I thought was interesting from the press's point of view. I think Paul Money's and Trace both brought it up that one very important tool for a reporter is being able to walk up to that council member or that whoever that governing body uh, or public official is after the meeting and say, what did you mean by that? Or why did you vote that way? And it is an effective tool for the press. And this has taken that off the table somewhat. And that that part has to be extremely frustrating for, for your guys. Well, I think it's it's frustrating because at their core, they want to get it right. And uh, I, I know personally the things that I say and the things that I meant to say are not always the same thing. And a lot of times after a meeting, the reporter is not up there just to torment the public official with questions. They are they heard something at the meeting and they wrote it down and they want to know, I mean, what did you mean by this? What is this in a practical way? What are we what are we really talking about? I need to explain this to, to the public through my publication and and not being able to reach the person or talk to the person right after the meeting uh, makes that more difficult and it makes their story inaccurate because it's not what I meant. It's, it's what I said, but it's not what I meant. So let's try and work together to get it as accurate as we possibly as possibly can. There's no requirement for public officials to talk to the press after meetings. Uh, nobody's got to talk to the press at any time, but it does help to get the story more accurate and give the public the best possible interpretation of what happened at the meeting. Absolutely. I, I think we've got an incredible press corps here in, in Oklahoma, uh, very dedicated individuals. Uh, I had the pleasure when I worked at the House of Representatives in the media office to get work to work directly with them. I think the thing that that bothers me the most is from that time to now, just how it has shrunk at the Capitol. And, and we don't have as much as many great press people watching over what's happening over there and even less in our, our local communities as local newspapers shut down uh, because they just can't make it anymore. And that's unfortunate because I think it's a very important part of the political process or the government process. So I appreciate what you and all your members do. I think that's probably a good point to, to wrap up for today. Uh, we've been talking with the director of the Oklahoma Press Association, Mark Thomas. We'll be back next week with another podcast and another interesting topic and an interesting guest. So I appreciate everybody listening and come back next week.